The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What collectivism says is that, yes, although there is some sphere of, you know, personal control over a computer, when you connect your computer to the Internet or some other network, you become part of this larger collective. And the internet is useful because everyone agrees to be part of that. And by agreeing to be part of that collective network, you have agreed to take on obligations to others and you've agreed to allow others to use your computer in certain ways. And so collectivism tends to be much more technology focused. They tend to look at the decisions made by engineers as defining what the outer bounds of privacy are. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for August 30th, 2023. What do we mean when we talk about cybersecurity? There's clearly a technical component. Can someone prevent, through clever hardware and software, someone else from accessing some device or data? But that just raises the question of who should have access. And that's not a technical question. It's a legal, social, and moral one. This, at least, is the argument made by Josh Goldfoot, Principal Deputy Chief at the Department of Justice's Computer Crime and Intellectual Property Section, the nerve center of the federal government's attempt to prosecute cybercriminals. A litigator and policy lawyer with decades of experience thinking about cybersecurity and digital surveillance, Josh just published a paper for Lawfare's ongoing digital social contract research paper series, making his case for why cybersecurity isn't just a technical problem. I spoke to Josh about his paper and what viewing cybersecurity as a social, not just engineering issue, means for our ongoing efforts to secure our digital lives. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 30th. Josh Goldfoot on cybersecurity as a legal problem. So before we talk about the paper, I want to ask some more general questions about cybersecurity and computer crime. And you have a really good vantage point for this, given your career trajectory. You started as a line attorney at the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property section at DOJ, uh, often known as CSIPS. Uh, You moved over to the National Security Division, where we met and uh, worked together for a few years. And now you're the principal deputy chief back at CSIPS. So the first question is, how has the field of cybersecurity and computer crime law, both the law itself and also the practice of it, changed over your career? 
Well, Alan, thanks for that question. And um, since you bring it up, I should state for the record, I'm speaking to you today in my personal capacity only, uh, which means the opinions I give you are my opinions and aren't necessarily Justice Department opinions. So, but to answer your question, I think, you know, when I started out on this, computer crime was still seen as a relatively small problem. It was a big enough problem that my organization, CSIP's computer crime section, had been created back in the 90s. Um, but even by you know the mid-2000s, it was relatively infrequent that you had a lot of prosecutions for computer crime. The biggest change really has just been the explosion in it. And obviously, it's a huge disaster for the country that we now have such an extensive problem with illegal computer intrusions and other computer crime. It's been fueled really by the growth in uh, criminal underground that has allowed people to purchase tools, to purchase services from each other and other criminals, form conspiracies, and launch all manner of attacks. Whether, and I think you know that's just been charted through time and then, since then, whether you're talking about identity theft, which was a huge concern in the first decade of the 2000s, uh, whether you're talking about intellectual property theft and bank ID, uh, bank credential theft and intellectual property theft in the 2010s, or you know, eventually roll out into this decade and people are now mostly concerned about ransomware, all of this has really been fueled by the same thing, which is sort of widespread vulnerabilities among American computer users to victimization and a growth in a criminal underground that understands those vulnerabilities and is growing to learn how to profit from it. Well, at least it's a full employment program for CSUP's lawyers and those of us who write in this field. So, you know, there's always a silver lining. Yeah. In terms of the the legal changes, I, I'm sort of curious what you think the the big unanswered questions are in this field. I mean, the, the way I look at it, there are sort of three major Supreme Court cases uh, about sort of computers and digital information on, on the criminal side in the last 15 years. I'm curious if you agree with me, the Riley case, uh, Carpenter, uh, which you talk about in your paper, and, and then the Van Buren case, which interprets at least part of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. From your perspective, I mean, are these fields relatively well settled and now it's just a matter of kind of filling in the edges or are there still big questions about foundational issues on the digital Fourth Amendment or, you know, what does it mean to access a computer without or exceeding authorization? It's a good question. Like, what are the pressing unanswered legal questions? Because sometimes I worry that I don't even understand which questions are the answered questions. To give you an example, you know, you you mentioned Carpenter versus United States, which was uh, about historical cell site location. The move where you go to a cell phone company and you say, tell me where this person has been in the past. Up until the Carpenter oral argument, essentially every court who had looked at the question thought that was a straightforward application of the Supreme Court's rule that business records and the control of a third party are not protected by the Fourth Amendment's warrant clause can be had with some other form of process. Um, That was the ruling at circuit courts, at the lower courts and everything. And then the Supreme Court changed that, right? And so I don't really have the confidence anymore, Alan, to tell you with certainty that any legal question is answered or unanswered. I think a way of sort of describing how law has changed is really, well, at least the law of computer crime and investigations is 
in the early days, like the 1990s and the 2000s, when all of it felt new and there was just so little case law, the predominant way that lawyers approached these problems was through analogies, right? Um, you would say, for example, I used to do a lot of research in computer search. People would say, well, a computer is like a file cabinet. And we have all of these white collar crime cases from the 60s and 70s about how the Fourth Amendment applies to file cabinets. So let's you know, analogize and apply those the other way. And I think for a couple of years, maybe a couple of decades, that was how a lot of lawyers did it. I mean, I remember reviewing a memo I won't tell you what this is an analogy to, but someone came up with the analogy says, this is like someone walking through a forest in a national park, sticking their hand into every knot in the tree that they can find and seeing what's in there. Okay. And like that was, you know, and now let's analyze that circumstance of the fourth amendment. You know, it was the best we could do back then. But when you're using analogies so heavily, you're losing sight of the social meaning and importance of computers and why we are using computers to do things as opposed to the old ways of file cabinets or phone books or trees and forests or whatever else you're searching for in the analogy. And so I think over time, although that form of legal reasoning hasn't disappeared, now you are much more likely to see lawyers and courts directly look at the technology, look at the role it's currently playing in society, and base their decisions on that. That's very helpful and actually brings up the, the last question I want to ask before we turn to your paper, which is the question of, of courts in particular. So I think it has generally been assumed that courts are not well-placed to deal with new and emerging technology and, and just the number of jokes about the Supreme Court struggling with how to understand pagers or cell phones or this thing called the internet. I'm curious, in your, in your experience, you know, now having litigated a ton uh, now before all sorts of judges and all sorts of courts, it, does this seem like a largely solved problem? Not to say that, you know, every judge has a computer science degree, but, but people are not sort of aggressively ignorant and, and think that it's okay not to understand computers when you argue before them. I've always found that criticism of courts to be unfair. Uh, even from the beginning, I found it to be unfair. You know, we rely on courts to have expertise on a vast variety of subjects, right? You know, if you get an antitrust suit over the twine industry, for example, a court suddenly has to understand everything about that and delve into it. They may not know the first thing about it before that case comes to them. How do you deal with that, whether it's technology or any other specialized subject? It's really sort of on the advocates to make sure the courts have that. You know, there, there is the saying that a lawyer who complains about the judge not understanding his case is kind of like a ship captain complaining about the weather. It's really our job as the advocates to present the truthful facts, the science, and as much of it as necessary in a comprehensible way so that a judge, a jury, whatever audience you've got needs to understand it. And that's really the approach that I take in my personal work or as supervising. You know, we try to figure out what are the issues a judge needs to understand? How do we uh, present that in a way while, you know, at the same time looking out for the advocacy interests that we're trying to present? So I think... Whether you're talking about the bench or the bar, 
you definitely have within the last 20 years seen a growth in people who had pre-existing technology backgrounds and understand or feel like they understand a lot of this stuff. And that, by the way, is I think one reason why the old analogy form of reasoning is starting to wither away because there's more people who can just talk about the tech to each other. But even then, you have to be cautious. I mean, I myself, I feel like I understand technology very well. I always approach with a great deal of humility uh, and the fact that I may not understand something correctly. And the only real frustration I'll air now is, you know, if you if you get a judge or an opposing lawyer who's absolutely convinced they understand everything about the technology and is closed off to hearing argument or examining other facts, that's really the toughest to beat. So let's turn to, to the paper. Your central argument, and I'm quoting here, is that cybersecurity is as much a legal concept as a technical concept. So sketch out the argument. And in particular, I'd love for you to describe what you mean by two very useful concepts that you introduce and use throughout the paper. One is the, you call the default cybersecurity ordering, and the other is this idea of legal patches. Thanks. That's a, that's a great question. So if you were to talk to someone whose job it is to defend a computer, like say in a bank, and you know, this is a person who says, my job is cybersecurity. You ask them exactly what does that mean? Who are you defending the computer from and who ought to be allowed to use it? Well, the person will have an answer. And it's usually going to be something along the lines of, this is the bank's computer. And so I want the bank's employees to be able to access it. And I don't want other people to be able to access it and so on. Built into that answer is a concept of an authorization of who is allowed to do this. And the cybersecurity professional sees his or her job as trying to make sure that the right set of people can access it while the wrong set of people cannot. What I'm pointing out in the paper is that that distinction we're making about who are the right people and who are the wrong people in our society is ultimately resolved with law. Now, in the past, we haven't thought about that too much because it seemed like a simple question. You would just look at who owns this computer you know, which, so you just, you know, you're bringing in property law. Increasingly, it's more complicated than that. Increasingly, law makes finer distinctions about who is and is not entitled to control a computer. Um, example I give is the relatively recent Ninth Circuit case, uh, Facebook versus HiQ Labs. This was a case, HiQ Labs was a small company whose business involved accessing Facebook, downloading information, and then selling that as an analytical product. Facebook didn't like that they were doing this. And so they sent them a letter, a cease and desist letter that said, under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, you know, the hacking statute, we are revoking your authorization to access our computers, right? You know, this is a website, billions of people across the world are authorized to do it but you now are not authorized. You just may not access our computer at all. And in addition to that letter, they actually put in a technological control, uh, blocking the IP address of this company so it couldn't even get there. Now, most lawyers up until that point would have looked at that and said, yeah, it's Facebook's property. They have the right to do that. You know, can block them. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals looked at that. HiQ, I'd say, it sued Facebook over that. It made the argument that the California unfair competition statute gives us the right to access this information because we and Facebook are competing and selling this type of product. And so we should be entitled to access it. 
Now, I'm not saying the Ninth Circuit got this right, but what they said is that's at least a plausible claim so that we will initially enjoin Facebook from doing this. Now, what's happening there? That was a legal decision about who is authorized to access a computer. And it was a legal decision that even though, yes, it is Facebook's property and Facebook owns it, the law is going to create a right of other people to be able to access that because there's other concerns maybe more pressing than vindicating Facebook's property interests. And Alan, you see that over and over with different types of examples where through statutes, through court rules, we have decided that even though one person controls a computer, the law ought to permit other people to access that. What all of these laws do, I describe them as sort of making a patch, which is to say a change. If you imagine a world without any of these laws at all, then you have what I call the default cybersecurity ordering. That's a world where if you just look at what computers on their own would let you do, computers and technology, and you ask the question, who is able to control this computer? The answer would be basically whoever is able to send a command to this computer that the computer will obey. So that might be the person who owns it. It might be a hacker in Russia who's installed malware on it. It might be the software company that put the operating system software on there, whatever. That's the default. And for the most part, that's actually what's going to happen. But very often, the default cybersecurity ordering is undesirable. And when it is, we use law to patch it. We make separate rules. For example, you would make a rule saying, yes, even though you are technologically capable of hacking into this computer and installing malware because the computer has been unsecured, we're going to make that a crime. Don't do that. And so the hope is that that legal patch acts as you know, a deterrent or at least a punishment for anyone who would try to do that, basically making an improvement. So would it be fair then to say, describing the case, uh, Haiku versus Facebook, that you know Facebook walks in and it says, we have a cybersecurity problem because the default cybersecurity ordering allows this company that we don't think should be able to access our stuff to be able to access our stuff. And we want to fix that by using the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act as the legal patch. And then Haiku comes in and says, actually, right, there's another mm-hmm. patch, kind of a patch to the patch. Um, which we think actually entitles us legally to do the thing that, as a matter of physics, we are allowed to do. And so, in fact, there is no cybersecurity problem. So, really, you know, the, these are kind of de- all these lit- lit- this litigation is all sort of debating whether or not, in fact, there is a cybersecurity problem. That's right. Uh, when you use the word cybersecurity, the question becomes secure from whom? Secure from whose point of view? And from HiQ's point of view, Facebook's servers were not secure because HiQ had the right to access them and that, at, that right was being denied. It was as though they had a denial of service attack put on a computer they're entitled to authorize. And yes, from Facebook's point of view, this was an unwanted intruder into its computer. And so from their point of view, it also wasn't secure. You, you lose law to decide who is right. You know, between these two competing parties, you look to courts and legal rules to define who actually is authorized to control. And when courts are resolving that, they're telling us what cybersecurity is. This then raises the question of on what grounds courts are making this decision, which is a values decision. And I think 
one of the most valuable parts of your paper is the argument you make that although this debate about cybersecurity pops up in what appears to be a lot of quite unrelated legal contexts, the value judgments ultimately fall into sort of one or two, one of two buckets, what you call sort of the autonomy approach to thinking about this question uh, and the collectivist approach. Just describe those two. Yeah. So when a legislature or court or whomever decides that it's a good idea to have a patch to depart from that default cybersecurity ordering, that's motivated by some type of normative concern. And that's often a moral concern. And I think, as I wrote, there are two different moral values that don't necessarily contradict, but sometimes do. Autonomy is the sense that people ought to have control over their own lives and their own computers by an extension, that there's a private sphere that comes within computing that ought not be intruded upon. If you, you know, imagine the, the feeling you would have of finding out that the computer that you had been using faithfully for months or years all along had malicious software on it that was reporting everything you did, invading every aspect of your privacy, and putting that computer completely at the control of someone else. On top of all the other concerns you would have, you know, is this going to hurt my bank account, money, and everything else? you have sort of an instinctive revulsion to that idea. You feel as though there's been an intrusion into your your privacy, your personhood. And that sort of inspires the moral sense of autonomy, that we as a society ought to try to prevent those type of intrusions. We ought to try to guarantee to people a certain sphere of privacy and integrity and how they're using computers. And autonomy really has been a hugely influential moral sense in at least American cybersecurity law. I think if you look at the reasons why in the 1980s they passed statutes like the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act or the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, in all of these, they started seeing, hey, in this growing world of computers, the technology and physics don't necessarily protect people adequately. And we need to enact statutes on top of that that sort of protect privacy rights, protect property rights in uh, how we see that those moral values applying in the computer age. Now, that's not the only value. The other value I talk about is collectivism. What collectivism says is that, yes, although there is some sphere of personal control over a computer, when you connect your computer to the internet or some other network, you become part of this larger collective. And the internet is useful because everyone agrees to be part of that. And by agreeing to be part of that collective network, you have agreed to take on obligations to others and you've agreed to allow others to use your computer in certain ways. And so collectivism tends to be much more technology focused. They tend to look at the decisions made by engineers as defining what the outer bounds of privacy are. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan 
when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. Let's, let's take an example, and maybe you can apply these two concepts. So imagine you have a computer, and uh, you have a bunch of data on that computer, and for some reason, the engineer behind it decides that the best way to protect that data is to put it in a file, or to put each piece of data in its own file, give that file a completely random name, you know, this you know, long string of hexadecimal digits or something like that, uh, and just put it publicly on the internet, right? On the theory mm-hmm. that no one's going to find it, right? And then someone realizes that there's all this stuff on the computer uh, and they, de- they decide to harvest it. And so they just run through, you know, they, they just spend a week running through all 10 billion different possible file names and 99 point whatever come up as an error. And the ones that don't, they download and then they use them. Right. And so then the, the, the owner of the computer sues the, the person who, who downloaded it under, let's say, 1030 under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Right. So can you just, just sketch out what these sort of autonomy versus collectivist argument here would be? Yeah. And so in that example, what the collectivist view would say is you made a web server and you put a file up on the web server and analyze whether someone's able to download that based on the collective communal understanding of how web servers work. And in order to figure that out, maybe you look to the technical specifications, like the request for comment document and so on, or you just look at the common understanding. But people would say, by putting that file, not password protected on a web server where anyone who just types that into a browser could get it, whether you meant to or not, uh, the law ought to allow people to download that. Whereas from an, an autonomy point of view, the intentions of the person who owned that file, who had privacy interests in that file, who wanted to keep it secret, matter much more. And the fact that you know there was a technical protocol that allowed people to access it is less important than vindicating and upholding their right to be private and how they're using computers to have control over their own computer and their own information, even though they did not take all of the technological steps that were available to them. Uh, they ought to nonetheless be protected from that. And so these two visions clash to a great extent, right? I mean, the collectivists could come back and say, if that's the world, then how do we have the web at all? Like if there's no one agreed upon sense of how we can, uh, you know, what people might do, then anyone is in jeopardy of being accused of violating the law at any point, or at least violating autonomy. How do we make it all work? And this is some ways, you know, these are the types of tensions, not just in that question, that arise over and over in criminal law and all other different cybersecurity silos. Is this tension resolvable, sort of either at a global level or even at a, you know, subject-specific or law-specific level? In other words, is there any reason to think that over the long term, the autonomy perspective is the quote-unquote right way of thinking about these problems, or maybe the collectivist one is? Or is it just that they're both very, very valid normative concerns and they just balance off and we do the best we can. And this is just the lang- a useful language to understand what's happening in all these seemingly disparate cases. 
Well, I think it's the parameters of the debate. That's what people ought to be debating is which of the two is more important. Um, I personally, Alan, I'm not sure that I come down on one camp or the other. Historically, as I mentioned, I think where it all began, autonomy was the biggest concern. And it was seeing how hacking was unfolding and so on in the 80s that led uh, legislatures to depart from the default cybersecurity ordering. And usually you're doing that in order to enforce an autonomy interest. Um, The collectivists tend to like statutes less and less and tend to want people to protect themselves solely through the use of technology, which everyone can understand. Um, I do not know whether they're resolvable, but I do think that that's where the debate ought to be. As people approach cybersecurity policy questions, it's very helpful to be able to identify to what extent is it autonomy that we're compromising, to what extent is it collectivism we're compromising, and considering both of those as important interests, where ought we come out? So now that we've gotten the main concepts and parameters out, I'd like to use the rest of our discussion to talk about the two main case studies that you provide in your paper. One of them is government surveillance and the other being international cybersecurity issues. So let's start with with government surveillance. Now, one concept you introduce, I think is important to get on the table, is this idea of reserved control. Um, And that ends up being quite an important idea, especially for how government surveillance tends to work these days in which the government is not necessarily going directly after your device physically, that is, but it's often going to a third party to get information that it holds about you. So talk about reserve control and why it's important to keep in mind as we're thinking about uh, these issues. So reserve control is a term that I use to describe the control that someone hangs onto even when they're selling you a computer or software. So normally, when you think of buying property, you know, like a non-electric mechanical bicycle or something, uh, once you buy that bike, you own it and you get to decide how it's controlled, who rides it, you know, how you use it and everything else. With a computer, that's not really the case because in order for a computer to work, you have to be using someone else's software. Uh, Increasingly, that software is going to be enforced on you at kind of a hardware level that you can't change which means that decisions about how much you can control this computer you just bought aren't all yours, but some of the control has been reserved by whatever company sold it to you. You know, extreme examples of this are computers like Amazon Echo speakers or really uh, modern smartphones like iPhone or Android phones. Uh, These come out of the box severely locked down. I mean, inside all of that is a processor memory. In theory, that should be a completely programmable computer, but it's not, right? It is locked down with the software that the whoever you bought it from has picked and enforced. And in some cases, that means they get to make decisions that are pretty much just in their benefit instead of yours. An example I gave us where Amazon at one point decided to just sort of share your internet connection with anyone who was walking past on the street, right? I, I remember that. I remember that scandal. It was a pretty fun one. Well, I mean, that was an example of reserve control. Amazon got to do that because Amazon is the one who is writing the software. Amazon is the one who has the ability to push software updates out to things. Reserve control is also an issue with the internet and web and online services, there, you know, you obviously are highly dependent on someone else. You know, you're using a computer that you do not own. 
but have some sort of contract right or other right to do that. And as part of that, that means that the online service, whether you're talking about Gmail or Amazon Web Services, at least as part of the default, you know, absent any law, has total control over your data, right? You know, they can do to it, they can make a copy of it, they can uh, usually read it, they might be able to forge it and everything else. It's really only because of legal protections and I guess in some cases, good business sense that they're not doing that. Uh, But that is another example of reserved control. And so how does this translate to the legal questions that come up? You know, whether we're thinking about statutes like the Stored Communications Act, um, which govern how the government can access data or constitutional provisions like the Fourth Amendment and cases like Carpenter that talk about those issues. How, How does that affect the legal analysis? So the specific example that I thought was most helpful to explore is an investigative step where the government goes to a provider of some type and says, give me records that you've got that are relevant to my investigation. And Carpenter, uh, United States versus Carpenter, was just such a case. Now, in that case, Mr. Carpenter uh, robbed stores. And while he was robbing stores, he carried a cell phone that was turned on. And as a result of that, his phone company had records of where he was. The government got that information using a court order and used it to convict him. And you know that became the issue that went up to the Supreme Court. Ultimately, the Supreme Court deciding that rather than a court order, the government ought to have used a search warrant, that the step of going to his company and asking for that information was a search. Analyze that as a cybersecurity problem. Uh, Why is it a cybersecurity problem? Well, you have a difference of opinion here, right? From the government's point of view, they had the ability to access that information because it wasn't Mr. Carpenter's, it was stored at a provider. Uh, If you look at how the dissenting justices in the Carpenter case describe it, you know, they use cybersecurity terms like owning and controlling. You know, they say, this was not information that Mr. Carpenter controlled, it was not information he was able to delete. He did not own it. You know, that was for them an extremely important point. From Mr. Carpenter's point of view, though, you can see that he might have thought, actually, this information is secure. True, I don't have it in my physical possession, but the, there has been a legal patch. The Fourth Amendment protects my right to have that. It blocks others' access, even if physically they're able to do so. And for that reason, my data actually is secure. And so what the Supreme Court was doing was resolving that dispute about the meaning of cybersecurity. They were resolving, like in that instance, can police without a warrant, uh, do they have the right to control the phone company's computers sufficient to get that information? And of course, that it decided, uh, to many people's surprise, that uh, he did not have that right. You also argue that the the majority opinion of Carpenter and then the various dissents illustrate the autonomy versus collectivist position. And I, I the, the the autonomy position I, I get right. Carpenter wants control over his location data, and he wants autonomy over that. Fair enough. But in what ways do you do you find that the that the dissenting opinions? are collectivist who, who whose collective interests are they are they vindicating is it sort of internet users or, or society as a whole what, what is the collective at issue here 
The dissenting justices placed huge emphasis on the technological reality of how uh, Mr. Carpenter's data was protected or not protected. And, you know, they've tended to phrase it in terms of whether he owned, quote unquote, the information. And sometimes we're more explicit in saying whether or not he had control over it. From that point of view, what was most important to them was not his uh, personal privacy or protection or anything else, but the extent to which he had successfully protected its security in a way that the larger collective connected to that phone network uh, would have understood. And the default cybersecurity ordering would have been that once it's no longer on a computer that you own, that you can't block people from using, that allows other people to access it. And that very much seemed to be what was motivating the dissenting justices, a sense that his lack of personal control over it was decisive and that it was rather a collective judgment about when information on a network is appropriately secured that they thought ought to have been decisive. So let's now turn to the second case study, uh, which is the, uh, you call cybersecurity between nations. And you have, uh, I thought, a, a really interesting and provocative definition of national cybersecurity. It's, quote, a nation's cybersecurity is intact if that nation can enact and enforce laws that accurately describe the nation's preferred cybersecurity ordering. So there, there's a lot in there, and I was hoping you could sort of unpack that, because I think especially when it comes to um, international relations, we, we tend to really de-emphasize the legal aspects and really think of it in terms of um, kind of brute facts on the ground. And, and here, I think you're really provocatively arguing against that. Oh, yes. I think law has an enormous role to play in international security and judge it, well, international cybersecurity and at judging how strong a particular nation's cybersecurity is. So if you begin with the idea that, as I said, the definition of cybersecurity really is the law of deciding who ought to be able to control which computer. Well, what do you do when two different nations each have laws governing the same computer that conflict about who is allowed to access that computer? An example I cite um, in US law, Uh, our hacking statute, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, in general says Americans are not allowed to hack computers outside the United States, cannot access without authorization and so on. But there is an exception in there saying the lawfully authorized conduct of intelligence agencies, United States intelligence agencies, is not a crime. Other nations presumably have similar rules, right? They have carve-outs for their intelligence agencies. Perhaps they're not as transparent as our law is, but you know, it's, it's understood that you have competing uh, nations who, at least as far as their legal views, define the, um, their own government hacking as lawful, but non-government hacking is not. Okay. That creates a conflict. And how you describe the success of that is in terms of Ultimately, who is able to describe a legal rule that's actually enforceable and true? So when the United States says it is unlawful for the Russian or the Chinese government to be hacking the computers of our engineering companies and stealing information, is that actually vindicated through the facts on the ground? 
Now, one part is, is that being vindicated through the successful network defense? Are we making it basically technologically impossible for people? And obviously, if you can do that and you can do it all with technology, great. You don't need lawyers, but you can't, right? That's not successful. So the extent to which nations are able to additionally use law to patch that is a measure of their strength. The extent to which the United States is able to enforce the law against hacking of that by uh, getting foreign hackers arrested, either directly in their countries or when they travel, by bringing other types of tools against them, such as sanctions or whichever else we can do, that is a measure of our national strength, just as much as the level of network security is in our country. How do the concepts of, again, I keep coming back to them because they're, they're so useful to think about them here, autonomy and collectivism apply to these sort of debates between nations when it comes to, to, to cybersecurity? I mean, I don't know, just to, to take a random example that I know you know a ton about, let's say like the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime. You know, is that a autonomy promoting? Is that a collectivist promoting project? And and also, I guess, how do those concepts map when you're dealing fundamentally no longer with individuals, but with large groups of people, right? You know, um, at the end of the day, what what does it really mean to talk about one country's autonomy except as one country's collective security? And so those concepts also then seem to sort of potentially be in tension just at the sort of level of description. It's a good question. So, you know, you referred to the Budapest Convention Against Cybercrime which to explain what that is, it is the, an agreement among, at this point, I think more than 90 nations, that they will try to align their national legal systems, that is the law in each country, so that each has roughly equivalent protections against hacking and also roughly equivalent in law enforcement investigative authorities. And as part of that also, although it's not explicit in the convention, is uh, being able to assist each other in investigations consistent with their own national laws. That type of collective effort, I think, is really one of our greatest achievements toward the international law of cybersecurity. To the extent that there is a credible, enforceable belief that nations aren't going to attack each other, or at least nation citizens won't attack each other, or when they do, that there is a coherent, lawful way of approaching that, I think that reduces tensions among nations and increases everyone's security. Where the questions of autonomy versus collectivism tend to come up in international cybersecurity, to my mind, most come often come up when a nation is trying to decide how to protect itself from other nations. As I mentioned, autonomy has really been the central motivating force in American law for years. And so too, really, for quite a while, when we were dealing with the question of national cybersecurity, you know, security from other nations, and say all of these computers that are owned by our banks, our hospitals, our defense contractors, it's their private property. And so the thinking used to go, it's really ultimately on them to be protecting their own stuff, right? And it's not appropriate for the government to step in and say, nice computer you've got there, but you're doing it wrong. You're defending it wrong. We're coming in and we're going to reconfigure this stuff. And like, look, we just fixed your firewall. And while we were in there, we ran a registry cleaner and now it boots faster, right? I mean, we don't allow the government to be that uh, intrusive in changing how people's computers work. 
said we'd let people to try to defend themselves. We give some type of things that government can do, such as creating criminal law. If you get hacked, call us. We'll try to prosecute and convict the person who did it. And more recently, we have been doing more work to try to find, you know, collect information about attackers and share that with companies so that they can better defend themselves. These are things that governments, I think, can uncontroversially do consistent with autonomy. But the question starts to come, at one point, is that not enough? Do governments, in order to protect their own national security, and particularly to protect critical infrastructure systems, need to begin enforcing a more collectivist value, notwithstanding the choices that you, the hospital manager, want to make about how this computer that's crucial to your hospital is being run. We, the government, want to be able to come in and regulate that and change that. And I think that is currently the question that the United States and several other democracies are really struggling with. To what extent are we going to be departing from autonomy and essentially intruding upon the autonomy of computer owners as a way of making the entire collective country better off, and maybe incidentally, those computer owners themselves. Josh, I think this is a good place to end it. It's a really good paper. I really appreciate you writing it. The concepts you put forward are, I just think, practically very useful and illustrative for folks, whether you know litigators or scholars or judges who are thinking about these issues. And so I really encourage uh, listeners to, to read the paper. Um, and thanks again for writing it and for coming on to talk about it. Well, Alan, those are wonderful compliments. Thank you for those. And thank you for the conversation. It was a pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.